This fall, we're learning together about how to feel as disciples. And in particular, what we want is to grow to become men and women who give our hearts to Jesus, who see our hearts in his hands so we grow uh, because of the influence that he has as we surrender our whole selves to him. This morning, the feeling we're going to discuss and learn about is the feeling of apathy. That experience of disengagement, the kind of lack of interest and concern that keep it keeps a person from being actively engaged in life. The feeling that reduces you to a sort of passive drifter. Instead of an active and engaged person in life, you kind of move along wherever uh, the wind happens to move you. And the reason we're going to discuss this uh, is because of the effect of apathy. Jesus has rescued us so that we can participate with him in building his kingdom. And when apathy leads you to give up, you become disengaged from the work that God saved you for. In, in many places in the New Testament, uh, the reason for God's rescue of you, uh, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, that God saved you by grace, that God saw you and the impossible place you were in, and in Christ, he came to rescue you and deliver you. In many places in the New Testament, the reason for that is described as you're becoming the person who contributes to God's work in the world in a unique way because you've been saved. In Titus, it says, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all so that grace would train us to live lives that are self-controlled so Jesus would have for himself a people who are zealous for good works. God saved you to become someone who is zealous to do good, and apathy is that feeling that drains all of the motivation out of you. It puts the fire out inside of you, so you are content just sitting back and letting life pass you by as if it has nothing to do with you anymore because you've just given up and checked out. If you know about this experience, don't, don't move, don't make any sound right now. So most of you know about it. I, this guy here, is not an apathetic person in general. Those of you who know me know I'm a pretty passionate person, right? I am. I get excited about most things. That does not mean I have no experience in apathy either now or earlier. There were phases in my life where I experimented with apathy just to see what it was like. Like every other college freshman, I went off to university and was thrilled at the newfound freedom I had with distance from mom and dad. I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. Do some of you remember those days? For me, it wasn't the temptation of partying that got to me. It was the temptation of no longer caring about the things that I had to care about when I was with mom and dad. Apathy was my newfound friend. Early on in the first semester, I had two sweet mates and a friend who lived down the hall. The four of us one evening got into an argument about which one of us was the laziest, who cared least about the things that others care about. It was me, Steve, Anthony, and Raju who lived down the hall. Somehow, it occurred to us to put money on this, this bet, who's the king of apathy, uh, our, here's how we were going to settle it. Whoever could stay in the same clothing as they were wearing when the bet was placed longest would win. <laughs> we got our money out. Raju looked at us like we were insane. He walked out of the room. So it was Steve, Anthony, and I, and the rules were you couldn't change for any reason. You could take your clothes off the shower, but they had to go right back on. Anthony lasted one full week. He gave up. Steve and I were stubborn enough and we believed apathetic enough to last all the way to Christmas break. 
Steve went up to Boston. My parents came to pick me up, and I realized I have a girlfriend who's from another school who's back at home, and I couldn't even stand being around myself, so I gave up. We came back and learned that Steve had lasted through Christmas Day, and his mom asked him for a Christmas present, please change if you love me, and he gave in. We got our money out. Raju walked in the room, and it dawned on us that he was wearing the same clothing he'd been wearing on the night of the bet. And he said, the truly apathetic person doesn't even get involved in bets to prove it. <laughs> of course, we gave him the money. The life, listen now, the life that gives into apathy, not as a college joke, but as a way of being. And I don't only mean the way of being where obviously the person is sort of swallowed up in inactivity. And maybe you know people like that. Maybe those folks aren't even here this morning. Uh, they need someone who can come and bring them to a profession who can help them. And sometimes people get into those places. But I mean the kind of apathy that keeps us from getting involved in the good things that God wants us to be involved in. The kind of disengagement, lack of concern, and interest that tempts us away from those things which God is calling us to do. The kind that makes us give up on the call of the Spirit. And if, if that's new language to you, let me try to say it like this. Your heart will awaken from time to time. Even if you don't know much about God, God will already be at work in you to say, there's something in the world that you should do something about and you'll wanna do it. But then all the time there'll be a counter voice, a movement in your heart that will say, you know what, uh, I'm not, I just, uh, and then you're gonna give up. For us who are Christians, there are various ways that God will tempt us to be disengaged from the things that he wants us to be involved in. And this morning, I want to address that because all of us in here will be tempted to squander the potential that's in us by giving in, in little ways or big ways, to, to the invitation to check out and to just be apathetic and give up on the tasks that God himself is inviting us to. The Apostle Paul knew that this was a temptation of the heart, of every heart to just give up and, and detach. And because he knew that, when he wrote the Christians that he addressed in the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, he spoke to them about the call not to give in to apathy. And I'm gonna spend some time with you this morning on one of those places in Galatians chapter six. Paul offered some instruction at the end of his letter uh, to those who would be tempted to disengage. And I want to consider this together uh, in our time. In verse nine, here's how Paul addressed this issue. He, he wrote this. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. Now, there in that one verse, there is a promise and a condition and a challenge. The promise is a promise that is meant to dislodge us from inactivity in the present so that we'll see a return in the future. It's right there. Look at these words. We will reap at harvest time. That is a promise. It's a promise that is underwritten by this man's faith. What he knows about God is that eventually, if we start out on the path that God invites us on, eventually there will be a good result for all of our hard work. The diligence and the struggle and the investment required right now might not look like it's doing anything at all, but down the road, there will be a return and it will be worth it. There will be a harvest and we will reap. That image of harvest and reaping is actually quite common in Scripture. Uh, it's used 
for various endeavors that our hearts will want to go toward, but our apathy will want to direct us away from. Let me ask you to think of yourself for a moment. Would you like to be a person who's more loving, yes or no? And to have more joy in your life, you'd like that too, wouldn't you? And to be someone who's not so unsettled by things not going right, you would love to see more peace in your heart. And, and not only peace, but patience for you and that person who's difficult for you to be around, or whether at work or at home. You'd like to be more kind than you are. When I spoke about anger a few weeks ago, you saw too much of yourself, and you would love to grow in kindness. You want to be more gentle than you are. You'd love to be more free with your resources and more gentle. You'd like to be more faithful and even self-controlled. All of those things you want because God wants you to move toward those good things, but you will not, you, you will, excuse me, you will reap, but not right away because it takes a lot of time for those things to grow. Paul said so in, in Galatians chapter five. He described those things which I just named as fruit of the spirit. And when can you eat fruit? Only at harvest time. And it takes a long while for fruit to grow. Uh, the person will reap fruit only when it's ripe. But this image here that Paul uses in this place to say we will reap at harvest time is meant to inspire you to know that if I want those things now, uh, it's going to take some time, but eventually I'll get there. And that is a promise from God. Uh, other places where the image of harvest is, is used, Paul uses it to inspire people to generosity. Uh, you know that the mission of God now and all the way back then cost money uh, to carry forward. When, when the church began in Jerusalem, there was a small church there. Paul spread out and lots of people became followers of Christ. The church in Jerusalem didn't have enough money. And so Paul wrote to all the other churches and told them, you've got to be generous. You've got to give so that God's work will continue there. And he used the image of harvest there as well. He said, don't give in a grudging way. Give generously. And if you sow generously, there will be a rich reward in a great harvest for what you give. That's the second way that image works. It also is used by Jesus. And some of you will know this, that when Jesus taught his followers that other people should come to know God and follow uh, God, he said, the word of God will be planted in their heart and it will grow and it will bear fruit. It will become wheat, but not right away. You have to sow now by proclaiming the gospel and then down the road, there will be a reward for what has been sown. All of these uses show the same fact. And it is that the good work we do now will bear fruit later on. That's the promise. But look again with me at the condition that comes along with this promise. Look at it in, in, in verse 9. If we do not give up. Now, that is a very simple and sober fact which Paul wanted them to know. We have to appropriate this as well. And it is that there is work for us to do without which there will be nothing to reap. And you know the great enemy of work is apathy. That voice that says, you know what, just rest and, 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 and stop and, and take it easy. Uh, you know, just back up and don't be so passionate about all this. Just take it easy. The Greek word, uh, which is there in, it, it translated as grow weary, is a word that means something like lose heart. Uh, don't, don't let us, if we lose heart, uh, if, we, if we give up, um, excuse me, if we give up, then we can't expect a harvest because the miraculous work uh, which God does to bring about the growth and the generosity and faith is not done without our participation. And that's how God has decided to do it. Uh, God will do his part, but we must do our part. Without the hard work of the laborers, 
the farmer, the one who goes into the field day after day to prepare the growth, there will be nothing to show at harvest time. And this is why uh, this condition is offered. God, God's promises to us will be experienced by us only when we accept the responsibility that they put upon us. And here, think for a moment. Uh, those ways in which you want to see growth, whether it's for you personally or in some endeavor that you're involved in or the church that you're a part of, you know it takes work and you know the temp temptation to give up. That's the condition. If we give up, we can't have this promise. That's why Paul adds the third clause here, which is the challenge. And look at it with me one more time. Let us not grow weary, Paul says, in doing what is right. And this is a challenge. This is not Paul saying, don't feel apathetic, and then you saying to yourself, okay, I won't feel apathy anymore, and then you're ready to go. That's not how it works. It's a challenge to uh, choose not to lose steam, not to give up, not to disengage, to faint, to check out, not to surrender to apathy and opt instead for disengagement. Because if you do, you will lose the promise that is you will reap at harvest time. You'll never see the good outcome that God has promised in your character now, in the work of the church, the, God, the mission that God is up to, in the invitation for people to come to faith. You think of it in this moment, and I'm asking you to do this, where you personally are tempted to give up and you know that God doesn't want you to. Maybe it is in becoming a person who's not so uh, derailed by fear as we spoke about a few weeks ago. Maybe it's not to be so uh, explosive in your anger. and you, you, you don't want to give up, but there's a part of you that does. Maybe it's the, the temptation to come back into the shadows of shame. Wherever it is, you let that come into your mind for a moment. And what you need and what I need too, and I need it, not just as a college student, even today I need it, is to learn how not to give into the temptation to give up, to become apathetic. Why do people become apathetic? That's a question which if we have some clarity on, it will help us Resist the temptation to give up. And I'll tell you this, many different paths, many different paths lead to apathy. Uh, we tend to think of only one or two perhaps, but if we can learn uh, how to feel with our hearts in Jesus' hands and to discover the things that initially tempt us to apathy, we'll have a much greater chance of avoiding the, the, the call to give up and, and to just throw the towel in. There are four pathways. We're gonna spend some time here together now. There are at least four which are very common avenues into giving up on God's good work. The first one is gonna be one that most of you will have already uh, considered. Uh, and, and it's this. It's the fear of failure. And I know this from my own experience as a pastor over these many years. I have again and again met people who've heard an inspiring sermon or seen the example of another person who's done great things who've become really excited about stepping forward and doing something good, who've decided it's time right now for me to make a change, to leave my mark, and do something significant. But then, when it comes from them moving to that dream into reality, they stall out, and almost always, in my experience, one of the primary factors is that they've become afraid of failing. Now, that is averse to risk, uh, they've lost all of the wind that had been in their sails, as if they've sort of unhitched the sheets and now they're like a sailboat that's just flopping around in the wind instead of moving forward, all because they've been afraid of what happens if they take a risk and it doesn't work out. Can some of you relate to that? 
Uh, Jesus told a story in which he depicted a character like this very vividly. A master uh, had an enormous amount of property under his control and having to go away for a while, he called together three servants and he gave each one of them a significant amount of his own capital to work with. Uh, He told them, when I'm gone, I want you to carry on uh, my business. I want you to carry it forward by putting these assets to work. Go out and trade what I give you. Uh, The first two servants took the capital that they had been given and they went right out into the market and they put it on the line, investing it so that they could have a return on what the master had trusted them with. By the way, Jesus did this an awful lot. You are in this story, every one of you. You are the person who's been given an enormous amount by God himself and you're not too young, you can't be too old to look at yourself and say, I'm someone who even though I can't see God, he's kind of away, I know that he's given me a lot to work with. Your talents, your abilities, your life, all of us have a lot to work with. And God wants us to put what he's given us to work for his kingdom. Those are the the good works that Paul was talking about in Galatians 9. The first two men, they went right out and traded with what they had, uh, what they'd been entrusted with. The return for both of them was 100%. They doubled what the master had given them. The third guy, he was afraid of failing. So when the master came back and said, show me what you did, the first two gave the master back what they had. Look at what the third guy says to the master. This is in Matthew 25, verse 25. I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. He had nothing to give back Uh, more than what he had been entrusted with for the very simple reason that he feared failure. He knew it would be a risk. He knew if he put it in uh, to the market that maybe he could lose it. And so he hid it. And and the master in Jesus' story is, is completely and totally disappointed with this servant because he did not take the risk that he was meant to with what he had. And my friends, apathy is gonna make you Uh, disengage like this man did, bury what you've got in the ground and be okay with not really moving things forward. And and, and one of the principal causes for you is gonna be that you are afraid of failing. Can I tell you something? If you risk what God has given you out in the market, there will be more than one failures in your future. Can I say that right now? Can anyone who's tried to do good things for God say, yes, you fail, yes or no? Of course you're gonna fail. But when the master returns, the return on investment in anything that we risk for God is always gonna be 100% and more because that's how God works. And you should take that truth into your heart the moment that you let fear of failure stop you from doing the good that you know God wants you to do. Take that into your heart and say no to the temptation to disengage and become apathetic. That's the first avenue into apathy. I hope I've closed the door to that one. Now, someone here is gonna get inspired and tomorrow you're gonna go do that thing at the office or at home or wherever you are that you've been waiting to do because you were afraid of failing. You're gonna get off the couch and get engaged and then you're gonna fail and that's when you need to hear this second lesson which is the second pathway to apathy is actual failure. Because when you try and you fail, sometimes it's not that big a deal but sometimes failure hurts so bad that it makes you wanna give up altogether. And I myself have experienced this even in ministry as a pastor. 
There have been times where I tried, it didn't work out, and the voice that came up in my head was the voice that used to keep me from getting involved, the one that said, Christian, don't try, you're gonna fail. I tried, then that voice said, see, you shouldn't have tried. I told you earlier, now, from now on, it's time to just give up. You've experienced failure, don't try to lead again. You can't do it. Uh, don't try to be uh, a parent again with those kids. They, they resisted, uh, they win, uh, just roll over and give up. Uh, you know what? At work, don't try to be an assertive, strong person. You're just as weak as you always were. Just sit back and coast. At church, you tried that new ministry. It didn't work out. It failed. Don't try anymore. That is exactly what the voice of the enemy wants to speak into your ears. And apathy will be so inviting. Do you know our technology today is the best, the, the very best enabler of apathy? Do you know that? You can watch any show you want over and over again and it feels just as good the third time as it did the first, right? <laughs> Jesus also encountered characters like this who tried and failed. There was a pool in Jerusalem which was surrounded by sick people. And I would say many of those people were people who tried and failed and then gave up and just stayed put. The legend for this pool, it was called Beth Zatha, was when the water rippled, that was because an angel had disturbed the water, and if you could get in before anyone else, you would be cured. This pool had people who'd been believing in that dream for years. Jesus went there, there was a man who'd been sick for 38 years who'd been there. Jesus came up to him and he asked a question, which, by the way, God wants to ask every person in this room who struggles with apathy or complacency in any area where God's inspiring you. He asked him, do you want to be made well? That's what Jesus said to him. Okay, this morning, I want you to do this. Picture God coming to you and saying, do you want to forever be passive or do you finally want to get involved in the game? And it's never too soon to start or too late. And Jesus says that. This is what the guy said to Jesus. Look at this. This is John 5, 7. Sir, he said, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. If it was just the first part, I have no one to get me into the water. You might think, well, he doesn't have the power to move at all. But he said the second part, as I'm making my way down, you know, I tried to get in the water. Someone else got in front of me. And then I just thought, you know what? It's comfortable enough on this mat. And then three, almost four decades pass. And I'm just okay being stuck exactly where I am. God does not want that for anyone Jesus comes to us where we're stuck because we've decided to give, give up because we failed. And he says, look, do you want to be made well or not? And all you need to do, Jesus tells him, get up. And he does. All that teaches us is that if, if we're open to what Jesus is saying to us and we do what he says, not feel differently or think differently, but do what he says, then we can move away from where we're stuck and say no to the temptation to give in to apathy. That's the second pathway. Now, some of you here are saying, all right, what's the third way we fail and the fourth? I don't even need to listen. I've been a success every day of my life. I am a winner. That's you, right? And I know that's you. That's a lot of us here because we live at Hilltop City Summit. We look down on everybody else around us. That's us. We are the winners. Fine. This is the truth. And here now, I'm going to be autobiographical. Here's my temptation. It's not just fear of failure. It's not just actual fear. It's also fear of success, that tempts people into apathy. 
I have a coach that I work with. Every, uh, every Thursday afternoon, we sit down, and he's wonderful. He's a really fine leader. He listens to me talk about what I'm facing as a pastor, trying to improve, to do the best that I can here. And he noticed a pattern over the last few months. He said, Christian, it seems like you get up to this you're succeeding. It seems like you get up to this place, but then it's scary for you to move forward even further. It seems to me that maybe you're afraid of succeeding. What do you think? Now, my first thought was, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody be afraid of it? But I said, because he's smarter than me in a lot of areas, I said, let me pause. Let me think about it. And then thinking about it, it occurred to me that just as we're afraid of failing, it's also equally and maybe sometimes more frightening to succeed Follow me here, because when you are, are doing well and then you succeed, it takes you into uncharted territory where you've never been before. At least when you try something and you fail, you get to go back to what you're used to. And there's some comfort in what you're used to, right? Change can be more scary. What if I succeed and I get there and then I discover that I don't have the skills needed to maintain? Or what if I succeed and other people around me see it and then, now the pressure's higher, right? Now there's more expectation on me. What if I can't deliver? And by the way, it's not just for people who stand in front of others that this temptation will exist. It can happen to you at work. What if I, I lead a project, I get there, and now I succeed? What if I can't take the ball even further? It can be in your parenting, in your friendships, in your discipleship, in every area. We will also find ourselves occasionally tempted by the prospect that we're going to reach a goal, get there, and then what happens next? There, there's a, a, a startling figure in, God's, uh, in the history of God's people who I think just was swallowed up in apathy simply because he succeeded and got afraid of it. Do you know the prophet Elijah? Uh, some of you will know this story. It's a magnificent story. At, at this point in the history of God's people, basically all of God's people had drifted off into disobedience. And then there was one man who said, no, I'm going to stand for God and what's right. And he brought the fight to all of the people of God who had turned away from him, all of the prophets of the uh, foreign religion. It was the prophets of Baal. And there on the mountaintop at Mount Carmel, he challenged all of these disobedient folks to come back to faith. And he, he, he called uh, on God himself to show up and God did. And it was the greatest success that any prophet could ever possibly have. And everybody saw it. And it was magnificent. Now, you'd think, oh, success like that. Now his career is really rolling. And, and try this. Imagine whatever success you possibly could experience that would be the best that you could imagine. In the wake of that, the very next story in the book of Kings, this is in 1 Kings 19, Elijah retreats from that success, turns his back on it, and he travels all the way from Mount Carmel to the furthest southern boundary of the land that God had given to God's people. And when he gets to the end of, of the land, he travels one more day into the wilderness, in the desert by himself. He sits down beneath um, a, a broom tree all alone, and he opens his heart to God and he prays in this way. This is uh, 1 Kings 19.4. Look at it. It is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. He compares himself to everyone who's, he, who's in his past, and he says, I'm no better than any of them. And the voice that is going to try to draw you away from continuing to care is an extremely clever voice. 
And it will say to you, you know what? Who do you think you are to be this successful? Uh, why should you think that there's so much potential in you? Uh, you're no better than any other person. Uh, think of how you're going to buckle under all of the pressure of moving forward. You can't do it really. You're just a fraud. And some of you who are in here right now have heard that voice speaking to you right as you are on the verge of moving forward and doing something magnificent with students in this church or with children in this church or some kind of mission or ministry in small group, whatever it is. That voice is a liar. And listen now, if it weren't for the truth of who God is, that voice would be right. But God, who invites and enables us to succeed, is also there at every success to empower us to go further forward. And so this morning, I invite you to say no even to that temptation and not enter the path of apathy because you're afraid of success, but go on and keep succeeding. Not for you, but for the good work that God has called you to. And can I say this to our whole church? You see that Renaissance Church is growing and maybe it's a little bit unnerving. What's gonna happen? What's God gonna do with us? You know what? God's gonna do with us what's beyond what we could even imagine. So when we're afraid of it, fine. Let's not let it uh, pull us into inactivity. Agreed? Okay, thank you. Uh, if you had been sort of passive there, I would have been deeply troubled. Here's the fourth, the fourth pathway. It is actual success that also drives people into apathy and disengaging. And this one's a little bit different than the other three in this way. When we have it in our minds that once we reach success and get that goal, and the goals that we are driving toward are not God's goals, but our goals, what will happen every time is success will never deliver on its promises, and then right beside us will be a voice that says, from now on, don't try anymore, just give up. Do you know the story of the Olympic swimmer, Michael Phelps, whose achievement was as high as anyone could ever achieve, and right after he achieved that, he was plunged into a deep depression. And there was a reason. It was because the promise of success didn't deliver. And that's also a temptation that I see, especially in an environment which is, is as successful as the one that we live in, where people are powerful, where they have all the resources they could want, where they want to achieve something and they're smart enough to go out and do it. And when that happens, when you strive for an achievement because your heart tells you that when you reach that goal, you'll finally be deeply satisfied and it leaves you completely flat instead, or when you get what you had invested in, when, the, when you can reap at the end of the harvest, but it does nothing for you, then it is so unbelievably disaffecting that right away you are on the verge of plunging in to that attitude that says, you know what? Nothing matters. And I'm just gonna give up on everything. I'll just keep coasting in this career or this influence that I have and I'm not gonna do anything else. I'm just gonna ride it out until I retire and then I'm just gonna unplug completely and enjoy what I've got for myself. That attitude also tempts people of faith who know God through and through. And it will tempt many of us who are in this room. The author of Ecclesiastes, and that is a book which is frank about how easy it is to drift into apathy and depression. Do not read that book if you're tempted with temptation, uh, with, with apathy right now. But, but this will be enough, okay, for this morning. Ecclesiastes 2.11, the words of a man who had succeeded. Look at this. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
He said that after every single thing that his eyes landed on that he liked, he got it. Every pleasure that his heart wanted, he was able to acquire it. Every success, every bit of wisdom that could be grasped after, he went and got it. And after all of that, he said, none of it matters. It's vanity and it's chasing after wind. Because if, if you go on your own path to what's good and you succeed and it never delivers, your heart is gonna remain empty and there's gonna be a part of you that's gonna wanna say, you know what, I'm not, I, it's, it's worthless. I'm not gonna do any of it anymore. And in that moment, okay, in that moment where you're tempted with apathy, whether it's any one of the four of these, whether it's you're just too afraid of failing, you're not gonna get engaged. Or you've failed, so you've checked out, if that's it for you. Or you could succeed, but the, the threat of what it will be like when it changes is so daunting that you've just kind of unplugged. Or you've succeeded, and now it's like, I, I think I'm just gonna give up. Whatever it is for you, whichever one of those four, what you need is to give your heart to Jesus in wherever it's apathetic, and you need to say to him, put a fire in my heart, because I know you saved me so that I'd become a person who did what was right. And that's simple. And sometimes I make things complicated, but that's simple. God came to rescue us. He blessed us with new life so that we would pass that life on to others. So that we would shine. He put a light in us so that we would shine in the darkness so others could see him and move forward. Paul comes back to this simple fact after very plainly promising and then uh, giving the condition and offering his challenge in Galatians 6, 9, he continues with what I would say we could call a very simple uh, pathway away from apathy for all of us to follow. In verse 10, here's what Paul wrote. Whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all and especially for those of the family of faith. Okay, that's I, we've talked enough about why people get apathetic. How should I move away from apathy? Notice, it's not by telling yourself to feel differently. It's not even thinking differently that's gonna get you out of apathy. Quite simply, it is doing something different that will move you away from apathy. Look very, very plainly, the first clause there. Whenever we have an opportunity, let us work. And that right there, that statement tells us that discipleship is gonna be work and let's all accept that, can we? That we're not just gonna imagine the way it works with Jesus is he saves you and then you let him carry you along from now on. Of course he carries you, but it is still work. When are we going to expect that it's gonna be work? It says it right there. Whenever we have the opportunity, let us work. So that means at all times, our eyes should be open to doing something. That's the way we get away from apathy. What should we do? Look at it. Let us Work for the good of all. That's the work that is gonna move us away from apathy. In that word, all, every single person on planet Earth is included except for one, and that's you. And if you're apathetic and you're sad about it and you turn your eyes back toward you, you are going to stay there. But here, if you will turn your eyes away from you and look at people at work, in your extended family, in your neighborhood, those are the people that God is inviting you to do something good for. And that's what you should do. You should turn your eyes outward and say, how can I work for that person and that person and that other one there? And once you begin to do that, you will get unstuck and you'll start to move forward. And then he ends with this last clause, which should make us think of each other, especially for those of the family of faith. And in Paul's mind, people who are in the family of faith are the ones who've decided to accept that when Jesus spilled his blood for them on the cross, they became his sons and daughters. 
And every one of you is invited to that, to simply accept that Jesus died for you. And if you accept that, welcome to the family, which means we are brothers and sisters with each other. And the best way for us to invest in doing good right now, not just for us, but for the people around us, and especially for the world, which is desperate for a community that is doing good, is to look at each other and say, how can I do good for that other person who's in my family because they are in the family of faith with me? You might say, I only know one or two people in Renaissance Church. How am I going to do it? Listen, it's easier for you than for me because you only have two people to choose from. If you don't know anybody yet, then your good work today is to get to know that person so that you get off the couch, you stop being unconcerned and disengaged, and you decide to do something good for them. Before this service ends today, I'm going to give you another way to do good, okay? But so that I don't preempt the work of the Holy Spirit, I want to be quiet just for a few seconds, and I want you to listen to God's voice saying to you, here's the fire that I want to light in you. Do this good. Listen, please. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at the harvest. That is a promise from God himself if we don't give up. Let's pray. God, protect us from giving up. Uh, Whether we've given up altogether or just in little and various ways, we've hesitated to trust you and keep moving forward in good. Inspire us now with the power of your spirit. Ignite in us again that fire that has gone out. Or, or for the very first time, send a spark into our hearts to bring us to life and then, and then inspire us to be people who are eager to do what is right, people who work for what is good, every opportunity we have, and not only as individuals, but also as a church altogether, make Renaissance a church that is on fire for doing what is right in the world through the power and inspiration of your Holy Spirit, we pray, and we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen.